Silas Barnes. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for giving us this time and this space. By grace, Father, you've given it to us as an expression of your love. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening due to illness, that you return them to us, Father, in your good timing, of course. We also pray for those that are still lost in this world, that they repent and receive saving faith. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality for all of us to enjoy. We just ask for your blessings on the message. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. All right. The Lord is our confidence. On Sunday, the Spirit reminded us of some things worth reiterating here this evening, starting with this. This was part of the, the blog from this past week. The title was Context Demanded. The Spirit used the topic of love, probably because it's the most overcooked, overused word in the universe like ever. It's probably the most counterfeited word of all time. Everybody seems to love everyone, but for the most part, it's not necessarily the kind of love that we see in the Bible. Nonetheless, that was sort of the thread, um, but the idea of the blog was the uh, context and the fact that context is demanded for us to be able to discern um, the intended uh, meaning of uh, individuals as they express themselves. So up here on the board, we live in a world that is starving us of precious context. The one thing we need to truly receive what the author of an emotion intended. Love is a perfect example. And I went on in the blog to speak to, you know, advanced communications, uh, technologies, phones, uh, you know, texting, um, the Internet, all that kind of good stuff. Um, it really is starving us of context. This even, this relationship is a perfect example of it. So much of our sanctification, as we've learned, experientially speaking, is a function of how we live our lives. How do we live our lives? Go to Philippians 2.12, because life has context, does it not? Of course, life has context. And it's what's beautiful about life, uh, the way God created it, is that we each are vastly in, uh, individuals, right? We're just, there's no two of us that are the same. And so we each have our own sort of life context. And the point is that so much of our sanctification, experientially speaking, is a function of that context. Context matters, but life itself has context and sanctification is a function of all of that. Look at Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so Paul is lending them a, com a compliment. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, and there's an activity there, 
and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm going to borrow from uh, John MacArthur on this one up here on the board. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It means to continually work, to bring something to fulfillment or completion. It refers to a believer's responsibility for active pursuit of obedience in the process of sanctification. Isn't that something? I've, I've never read that before. I just plucked that out of my own study Bible at home this morning. It almost is verbatim of what the, the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit now for weeks. Again, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling means to continually. That's the idea of experiential sanctification. It's a progressive thing. It's accomplished over time. It means to continually work to bring something to fulfillment or completion. In other words, as an end goal, it refers to a believer's responsibility for active pursuit of obedience in the process of sanctification. Again, so much of our sanctification, experientially speaking, is a function of how we live our lives. I was thinking about this. Think in terms of priorities. Priorities are a good indicator of where, what the context of our lives is uh, today. What are our priorities? If our priorities aren't aligned with the Word of God, and notice I didn't just say God, I specifically said the Word of God, which gives us additional hope because we have access to it in written form. Our prior, if our priorities are not aligned with the Word of God, uh, we, uh, excuse me, if our priorities aren't uh, aligned with the Word of God, then our context is out of whack. We are disoriented. And to the point of this past week's blog, Context Demanded, we have to remember that God intends for us to be active members, hence the point on the board, actively working out your salvation, active obedience, which is what leads to sanctification. Isn't that what we've been learning now for months? That obedience really is the precursor to sanctification. So again, to the point of this past week's blog, Context Demanded, we have to remember that God intends for us to be active members of His body. He intends for us to work out, to bring to completion our own salvation and sanctification. Of course, God is the power source, but we are certainly involved. That's that duality that we've studied several times in the past. We don't just sit back you know, as some would say, let go and let God, that whole thing. And we're also not to be religious where we push God aside and say, I've got this. It's a joint effort. So this implies being present. And I have quotation marks in my notes. This implies being present for life itself. Do you ever see um, like the walking dead? Actually, the Bible talks about that. The adulterous woman, the promiscuous woman. Uh, is basically alive, while, but she's dead. She's dead while she's still alive. She's basically the walking dead, right? That person is not present in life. We ought to be present in life. This implies being present for life itself. 
to work out our salvation. It requires being present for others, especially those of the faith. Go to Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6, verse 10. I'm almost wobbly up here. I kid you not. Does anybody care? <laughs> Nobody cares. You're doing fine. <laughs> Galatians 6.10. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, the principle has been, since the start of class, uh, the implication is that we have to be present for life itself, and therefore present for others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Galatians 6.10 says. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So might we step back for a moment to ensure we are actually living this way? I mean, isn't it a lot easier to just give this kind of scripture lip service? Oh, yeah. I'm, t I'm like totally living for other people. But are you? Because God sees the heart. So we can't fool God, are you? And that can only be answered in your own soul, in the privacy of prayer with uh, the holy God of the universe. So might we step back to ensure that we are actually living this way? I mean, is it fair to say that we sometimes, if not often, find ourselves distracted by the world and the people in it? Is that fair? I think so. Is it fair to say that we've all allowed ourselves to be seduced by the evil that exists in this world and even in others? Is that fair? Yeah. Is it fair to say that we neglect the very people we were joined with in the unity of the faith at salvation? Yeah. Absolutely, we do. We do all the above. Again, what does verse 610 say? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I want to look at one more verse on this, a more specific one, but along the same lines. Go to 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Same idea, just a little bit more specific. First Timothy five verse eight. <clears throat> but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What is Paul writing here? Well, to summarize, he was essentially pointing out that at the time in Ephesus, there were instances where believers were failing to care for members of their own households. 
failing to care for members of their own household. And that's a real tragedy. And I think that's um, probably prominent, I would argue, uh, having traveled over to, uh, I don't even know how many countries at this point, but um, a lot of company, uh, countries, it's not like that. A lot of countries, um, the, the first people that are taken care of are the immediate family. Um, in America, it seems to, we, we tend to separate, we tend to draw these lines and, you know, we justify it and we make excuses and we say whatever. Um, but in Ephesus, there was this case, not a whole lot unlike right now and even in America, where believers were failing to care for members of their household. And this is very interesting because we can all relate to it firsthand. For example, husbands and fathers, it's not your option. You ready? Listen, if you're a husband or a father, it's not your option. It's your duty to take care of your wife and children. That's your household. It's not your option. It's not an option. It doesn't matter if your wife is the biggest witch and she rides a broom. It doesn't matter. You're not, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It doesn't say, well, she's a witch, so you don't have to care for her. You married her. That was your choice. You took a vow. It was a covenant before God. Same thing with the kids. It doesn't matter if they're you know, uh, brats or not. It doesn't matter. It's your duty to take care of them. That's your household. And that's a command in the Word of God. Women are not given the same level of responsibility. Women are told to love their husbands. Excuse me, uh, to respect their husbands. Men are given all the responsibility and they are commanded to love their wives. Very interesting. I believe I wrote a blog about this years ago highlighting this notion of men thinking they ought to be praised for simply doing what God has asked them to do, as if it's a big thing. I, was, it, I remember, because I remember the, the TV program I was watching, it was an interviewer on the street, and they went up to some guy on the street, and he was bragging, like he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a good man, I take care of my kids. And all I could think was, dude, you're supposed to, you dummy. Why should anybody pat you on the back for taking care of your kids or your wife for that matter or anybody in your household. That's what you're supposed to do. When did that become like, uh, you know, cause for a reward? That's what you're supposed to do. First Timothy 5.8 again, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus spoke a parable about this very thing. Let's read it for emphasis. Go to Luke 17, verse 7. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus spoke a parable about this thing. Luke 17, verse 7. <clears throat> Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will, not, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly 
and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And that's a rhetorical no. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our what? Duty. What was our duty? We're not supposed to ask for a pat on the back for doing what we're supposed to do. That's the American way. Everybody gets a trophy, right? You don't even have to try anymore. You don't even have to get off the bench anymore. And you get a, a trophy for what? So, I guess showing up? That's the American way. That's not biblical. Again, husbands and fathers are a perfect example, but here's the thing. They are hardly the only ones. We are all held to a higher calling, remember? We are all called to live for others while esteeming them higher than ourselves even. That's Philippians 2, 3 to 4. We are all called even specifically to take special consideration of all those we call brothers and sisters in Christ. So this brings us back to the instigating principle from the start of worship this evening up here on the board. Context demanded from the blog. We live in a world that is starving us of precious context. Folks, whether you like it or not, you got to get out there. I'm not saying you got to go out and do something uh, that's not necessary or that's uh, contrived, right? Um, you know, I know like a perfect example, God love him, right? Scott's always at the malls and the, the parks and stuff like that, and he sends out invites, I know, because I get them, and I never go, right? Because I'm not called to go. It's that I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel any. I, I just feel I'm not called. The Spirit doesn't move me to go, so I don't go. That's just the way it is. That's, that's a one man's ministry with an open invite. And if you want to go, that's great. But everybody in here has their own ministry. And you're not all ordained evangelists. You have your own ministry. I think Tammy and I were talking about the other. No, maybe it was, maybe it was me and you. I can't remember. I, was talk, I can't even remember. Thank God I have notes. We were talking about the Johnsons, right? Now, I've, I don't think I, maybe he did, and maybe she did, but Bill and Lois, I don't ever remember them go, running around malls and handing out tracks. But if it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for them, my entire family, think about how the tree rooted, right? They lived... As Christians, that was their example, and they invited us. They invited me, this scrappy little <laughs> brother of Kathy, into their home so we could study the Word of God. They fed me first, <laughs> and and then they, they 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 introduced me to the Word of God, and here I am. Right, that was their ministry. Does everybody have a Bill and Lois? Of course not. Not everybody has a tractor even. That's an inside joke. <laughs> right? Anyways, we live in a world that is starving us of precious context. Find the context in your life. Don't force it. Let God teach you it. Pray on it. See what he has in store for you. 
See what happens. But don't force it. Don't say, oh, man, those, those messages coming from the pulpit, they're just so convicting. And, geez, I look to my left and my right, and this one's doing this, and that one's doing that. And, boy, I just don't, quote, measure up. Well, that is a terrible thing, a terrible angle into the context of your own life. You cannot use the context of someone else's life to measure yourself against. That never ends well. I've taught you this. If you think you're doing better, you get arrogant. If you think you're worse, you get pressed down. When do you win? Never. You don't do it. Don't compare, especially not on that front. Life is context. Again, we live in a world that is starving us of precious context, the one thing we need to truly receive what the author of an emotion intended. Love is a perfect example. So much of our sanctification, again, is a function of how we live our lives. What we see in Holy Scripture really is an inescapable reality. And J. Vernon McGee said it this way, right? <clears throat> Most of you know this. Your actions speak so loud I can't hear a word you're saying. There's a whole lot. Of, we almost specialize in lip service in America. We're all about the avatar, right? We're all about what the perception of us is. We do everything we can to, to modify and primp and, and do everything we can to make this ridiculousness attractive to the world. What a waste of time. What a waste of time. And that's why I love this statement from McGee. Your action speaks so loud. I can't hear a word you're saying. What the Spirit's trying to drive home is a sense of, let's call it a sense of immediacy regarding self-examination. A sense of immediacy. Just an ever-present immediacy. I hope you know what I mean by that. Particularly on the topic of obedience. And surprise, surprise, right? What about obedience? What about the context of your life relative to all that we've learned in the Holy Bible about obedience, about love, about how obedience is what takes us to sanctification? That's the yardstick. So again, the Spirit's trying to drive this home. Why? Because as he taught us recently up here in the board, sanctification is a function of obedience. Obey and you're sanctified. Remember we looked at uh, Romans, beginning, end, middle. Remember that? We looked at one, six, chapter 1, chapter 16, chapter 6. We could have gone other places. The linchpin for Paul describing sanctification was actually the obedience of faith, was obedience. We are called to obey the command to live for others. And don't miss this. When we do, you ready? We're commanded to live for others. All right? Don't forget what we just learned about the household of the faith, uh, our own households, all that stuff. We're demanded and commanded to live for them. When we do that, you ready? We're sanctified. That's the beauty of grace. When we remove this garbage shell, when we stop focusing so much in, in idolizing ourselves, when we, when we drop this facade, when this is gone, and we stop focusing on others, that's when we're sanctified. As long as we hold on to worldly things, 
we thwart the plan of God. We frustrate it. We slow way down. So here's the beautiful thing. When we live for others, when we obey that particular command even, we're sanctified. This echoes all the way back to our series on grace a couple of years back now. This is how the grace of God works. Up here on the board, I'll phrase it out for you. The way grace works. We are sanctified when we are gracious towards others. Remember that? Do you remember those lessons? I do. How grace, it's, it's where we, um, we also um, looked at the Greek, I think it was the first time I introduced the, the Greek word parasauo, um, which meant to um, overflow. And that's what grace does. When we're filled with grace, it overflows into the laps of others. And, and this thing happens. This real thing happens. And when we're filled with grace because we're living for others, guess what? When grace circulates through you that way because God's pouring it in while you're pouring it out, when grace circulates through you like that, you're sanctified. There's a stickiness to it. Uh, I, I, the best way to say it is a sanctification property. When, when grace passes through us, we are sanctified. If we try to hold it like religious people do, Gimme, gimme, gimme. What can God give me today? What can God give me today? All our prayers are, God, can you give me a million bucks? God, can you bring somebody into my life? God, can you fix my dog? God, can you fix my mouse for my computer because I'm, I'm addicted? Whatever. It's all about us, right? God, can you make me prettier? God, can you make me more handsome? God, can you make me stronger, smarter, richer? Whatever. It's all a bunch of garbage. But if we say, Lord, give me the strength to show up to church tonight so I can encourage that guy who looks like he's going to sway right off the stage about now, so I can be encouraging to him and everybody else. Give me the strength to give to them. How about that? And watch what happens. Don't believe me? Try it out. See what I did? I, see? No? I prayed on your arrogance, and then you get sanctified? Nobody? In my slow brain right now, that was something. <laughs> I'm like, whoo, you're on fire. Woo. We are sanctified when we are gracious towards others. Please let that sink in. The reason this may at first seem confusing is because it describes the exact opposite of the self-sanctification the world espouses. The exact opposite. Self-made man, self-made woman, keep it all for yourself. He with the most toys in the end wins. All that garbage. Let's idolize Steve Jobs who could care less about Christ or Bill Gates who's a known atheist or anybody else that's got all the money or these ridiculous actors. Go to Acts 20, verse 35. The point on the board is literally antithetical to this world. The context of this world, which every believer belongs, is antithetical to the context that God wants to sanctify us in, which is our lives. All done by grace. Acts 20, verse 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, 
we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's a, I don't know, drum roll here, right? This is, Jesus was not a, uh, a dummy. I think he might have been on to something. Do you think he just said this to be quippy? It's more blessed to give than to receive. And he walked around in some kind of weird robe with a tall hat or something and said, aren't you so glad that I'm blessing you with my uh, proverbs and my sayings and my words of wisdom? This is not, has never been, and never will be a worldly statement. Never. Only believers in Christ have the supernatural ability to understand and appreciate the depths of Jesus' words in Acts 20.35. Jesus isn't a quip artist of sorts, like so many of the world counterfeits are. Jesus never once sold the good news about salvation in himself. Never ever did he sell it. He never peddled the truth the way world, the world does, the way even some of the most popular ministries do today when they sell their books and their wisdom. Jesus nor his disciples, they never sold anything to anyone. You try to find it in the Word of God where Jesus Christ, you know, we call ourselves Christians, right? where Christ, the author and perfecter of the faith, the Savior himself, the one that had the message, he lived the message, he was the manifestation of the gospel, never ever sold it, not once. Look around. Look at what Christianity has become. You know it's big business? I think I gave you the figure once. It was in the billions of dollars. It's huge business. And it's a shame. Jesus nor his disciples ever sold anything to anyone. They merely spoke the truth without fear of offending human sensibilities. And you know, in a way, and I don't mind saying this, I'm doing you the same favor right now. How, you might ask? Well, for starters, by putting you back on your heels for a moment so you can examine the point on the board. We are sanctified when we are gracious towards others. The question on the table since the beginning of worship this evening has been, are you obeying God's command to live for others, to spend your precious time and energy for the building up of the body of Christ? Or are you possibly playing some sort of game, not yet fully understanding the point on the board? It's okay, by the way. If you're not there yet, don't be all guilt-ridden. Nobody gets this out of the gate. Nobody gets this out of the gate. This is uh, what you would call a more mature-type principle. And I'm talking about fully understanding it. Are you playing some sort of a game? Let's quickly review some Holy Scripture from Sunday's message. And as we do so, try to focus on what you say to be true about your life? Focus on that. What do I say about my life? When the pastor's up there talking about such things, the context of life, 
living for others. Um, what say? What do I say about my own life? Measure that against what is actually true about it. Not what you like to say and not what you're in the habit of saying and not even what others think of you, but what your life actually is. Go to Hebrews 10.23. Hebrews 10.23 Hebrews 10:23 Just compare the two what comes out of your mouth and what the actual reality is in your life Hebrews 10:23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This kind of encouragement, what you're doing right now, I alluded to it earlier, just being here, gathering together, not neglecting to meet together, is a wonderful form of encouragement, and it's also a fulfillment of the type of commands we've been thinking, of, uh, looking at and considering. So this encouragement here certainly falls into the line of thinking on the board, right? Yeah. While you're thinking about that, remember that the kingdom of darkness hates the concept of divine grace. Hates that some of you got the point on the board. Hates that you've been sanctified by it a smidgen more, even this evening. And just as a side note, as we've studied many times in the past, the kingdom of darkness will accept and even promote a counterfeit version of grace, even in the churches. But not this one. Not this one. Again, what's the point of the board? This is the way grace works. We are sanctified when we are gracious towards others. Therefore, one of the greatest strategies of all in this world is to disrupt and frustrate our living for others. Take pause. Take pause on that. One of the greatest strategies of all in this world is to frustrate and disrupt our living for others, to break the command. We have a command to live for others. Did we not just read that in several places? Okay. What do you think the kingdom of darkness is going to do? It wants to snap it. it wants to break. It wants you to break that command and start living for self. Preoccupy self with self and depend on self-sanctification. Don't worry about it, God. I'll take it from here. I'm going to live for me. I'll walk my own way. I don't need you to carry me by grace, by living through others. I'm going to carry myself to the end goal. You know, chances are that person is probably not even saved because that kind of an attitude doesn't exist to that degree in an actual believer. Because an actual believer is given a new heart, courtesy of God the Holy Spirit. Anyways, one of the greatest strategies of all is to disrupt and frustrate our living for others. A perfect indication of that is what we just noted in Hebrews 10.25. I know for a fact there are people that just decided, let's face it, just decided, I don't feel like going tonight. Just decided. I'm not talking about work. 
I'm talking about, you know, I don't feel like encouraging other people. This is about me. I'm not talking about sickness either. I'm talking about actually living for others. Actually. If the kingdom of darkness can tear you away from your church family, it's got a better shot at disrupting your sanctification. That's not rocket science, I hope. Jesus said this up here on the board, Mark 3.25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. You don't think Satan knows that? Satan knows the Bible better than you do. Right? Read Matthew 4. He used Holy Scripture to try to trip Jesus up. Paul wrote along the same lines up here on the board. I'll give you the amplified, Romans 16, 17 to 18. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and create obstacles or introduce temptations for others. Keep your eye. I alluded to that from my perspective even, uh, that I've always got my eyes peeled. Create obstacles or introduce temptations for others to commit sin acting in ways contrary to the doctrine with which you have learned. Turn away from them, for such people do not serve. Remember, anything that takes you away, what did Jesus say? Cut it off. Paul's saying the same thing. Turn away from them. If this person's a stumbling block for you, and they're trying to weasel their way into your life to distract you, cut it off. It's that simple. It's not hard. Just cut it off. Do so politely, but cut it off. Turn away from them, for such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites and base desires. By smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now, that's the beautiful thing about all of you. Hopefully, by now, you're not stupid. You're not stupid. You might get caught off guard. Someone's super slick, but you're not stupid anymore like you used to be when you were a kid. By smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, the innocent and the naive. And Jesus had choice words about those individuals. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> a little bit about a millstone around the neck. <coughs> Again, all I'm trying to do is my duty. I've been called in a special way. I have to obey this calling. You know how easy it would have been for me to, like, Literally, fall asleep, roll over and, and text Todd, cancel church. Right? It would have been really easy. I probably would have been out just like that. Nope. Nope. Drive in here. Get it done, right? I'm doing my duty. Remember the yoke? No one ever said that being yoked didn't involve work. This is work. I can either say, hey, you guys, I love you. Aren't I just the greatest pastor? Don't you love me? Or I can get off my ass, get in my truck, drive here, and do the dang, dang job. I don't want to get too crazy. I'm just going to blame it on my condition. <laughs> right? I can get it done. Which one, which one is... Uh, which one's proof in the pudding? Me yakking? Hey, oh, oh, Todd, by the way, tell the congregation I love them. Or I get up here and I'm here for you. That's me doing my duty. 
You, you decide. All I know is that in my heart, I'm living for you. And it's not always easy. Which, again, in the grand scheme, in the context of my life, is to esteem you as more important than myself even. Which, by the way, you should imitate my faith, remember? Mimeomai, where we get mimeograph. To teach you what the Bible has to say, even with my example, to teach you what the Bible has to say about your sanctification. I know, and I hope you don't know, I'm not focusing on me. I just don't have any filters, I'm tired. I know for a fact, by my getting here tonight, half dead, I'm better for it. I'm sanctified by it. By the grace of God, you all have been given a grace gift, and you're looking at them. I know, I know. <laughs> Go to Ephesians 4.13. I know. Ephesians 4.13. And this has nothing to do with Ed Collins, by the way. It's about the office, about the spiritual gift. It's about obedience. It's about imitating another person's faith. It's about gathering together. It's about encouraging one another. It's about the whole ecosystem where the currency is grace. Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, this comes right on the coattails of these spiritual gifts, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's when you begin putting all of this together that you begin truly understanding what faith and confidence in Christ actually looks like. And the proof in the pudding, as they say, where the, pr the pudding is your life. The proof is in the pudding. The pudding is your life. That's where you garner additional confidence up here on the board. Paul wrote that out as the unity of the faith. This unity reinforces our personal confidence in Jesus Christ as Lord. To be around like-minded believers is a grace gift from above, something we ought never become familiar with. This is a grace gift, folks. It doesn't get much sweeter than this. This is grace. This is truth. Reminds me of Pastor Joe's church, right? Grace and truth. This is grace. This is, this is where it happens in here. This is where you're cordoned off from the rest of the world. This is where you're protected. This is where you're shepherded. shepherded. This is where good things happen. Out there, you're back in the, with the wolves. You're back out into the world. I'm not saying, hey, listen, people start showing up with tents and sleeping bags. You know, I just don't feel right about going back out there. Nobody's up for that. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that, in other words, all of that, that intake, that equipping of the saints has a purpose. It's called sanctification. So that. We may no longer be children. In other words, you grow up in Christ. That's what we call maturing. That's a descriptor 
that we put on sanctification proper, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes, remember it's an active effort, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So then we look at the corporate body. When everybody's working together, when grace is flowing through all of us, we're all built up in love. In love. This is a giant concept here in verse 16, the second part. Don't overlook it. So that it builds itself up in love. And I mentioned this earlier as a side note. Love just might be the most overused word in this world. And it makes sense that the kingdom of darkness would dilute it that way. Just a side note. Again, so that it, the body of Christ, builds itself up in love. In other words, the end goal of sanctification can be captured in one word. And it captures obedience to the whole law in the process. Allah, excuse me, Galatians 5.14. The end goal of sanctification, anybody want to guess? is love, is love. God is love. Sanctification literally means to be set apart for Him. Well, if He is love, where are you going? Where are you headed? God is love. You're moving towards Him. You're moving towards love. The end goal of sanctification is love. This is why I often teach that love is the great litmus test for sanctification. Of course, we have to learn about love. It's not that romantic Fabio thing. It's the love in the Bible. It's the love that Christ showed us, even on the cross. It's the love that we see in the book of Acts, as individuals went out and got uh, martyred even in the end. It's the love we see in all the apostles. It's the love that we see that grace provides or grace produces uh, in an individual. So the great litmus test for sanctification is actually love. It's how you know. You don't have to go down some laundry list and say, well, I do, you know, I, I, I give more to the church, and, I, you know, I went with Scott a couple of extra times this year to the, to the park, and I, went, no, I hope you're not offended. Uh, I, I did this thing, and, you know, I'm just saying, people can do that to good things even. They can pervert good things and say, you know, I did this, I did this, and I did this. And last year, I only did this and this. So this is greater than that. I must be sanctified. Boom. No. You don't need to do that. That's an that's a, uh, exercise in folly. You don't need to do that. Do you love? For real. Does that love take you off the couch and get you here? Does that love uh, reach out? to loved ones that you care about, that you don't want to see uh, burn in hell? Does that love go the extra mile? Does that love activate something in you? I'm not trying to tell you which one. That's, that's why I'm speaking almost waxing poetic here because I don't want to, anyone to latch on any specific activity because that's between you and the Lord. What matters is your heart. 
Is your heart first directed towards him? Do you love him so much? Do you? Do you love him so much that that's all you want to think about? And then when he turns around and says, that's awesome, go love my sheep. Especially those of the faith. Go love them first. Do you want to, even though they're bratty or witchy or whatever your issue is with them? Do you? That's the litmus test for sanctification. It's actually love. I know it sounds almost too simple, but it's really not. It's, love is huge. Beyond our, beyond our ability to fathom it even as human beings. Again, this is why I often teach love is the great litmus test of sanctification. It's because to the degree you are sanctified, you will abide in his love experientially. That's your personal litmus test. And don't be afraid to take it. Don't be afraid to take it. Even if you say, you know what? Eh. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of love. At least you're being honest. We call that confession. God can work with that. God works with the humble. At least you're being honest. That's the first step. Amen? Yeah. You don't have to be condemned and be like, oh, man, I, I, you know, I'm never going to be like Paul. I'm never going to be like so-and-so. Or even you know, someone you know that you just you know, really adore because of their love for Christ and others. Don't do that thing. Again, you're right back to comparing. Don't be afraid to take it. All the Spirit's been encouraging us to think about in these past couple of messages is the connective tissue between our obedience to the command to live for others and the result of obedience, which is namely sanctification, which ultimately leads to love. Obedience, I, I'm sorry, I'm a dork again. Obedience is a vector. You know what a vector is? It's basically an arrow and it points, right? And because it's a vector, it has a certain moment, uh, uh, velocity to it. So you have a certain like speed. You're like, you know, you know, going right towards. Where's it pointed, though? Love. What's the end goal of this sanctification, of this vector that Christ, through Christ, puts you on, that God puts you on? What's the, what's the direction? Love. You can literally say, I'm going to love. And the closer you get to that, the more you love. So let me give you this. <clears throat> The goal of sanctification, the divine context for the life of a believer, is love. Think of the start of class. Find that context in your life. Context matters, right? Context is demanded even. The goal of sanctification, the divine context for life of a believer, is love. That's what sanctification is all about, to lead you to love. True love cannot help but express itself, right, as we've learned. So, as we take the litmus test, we must consider passages like, go to Hebrews 3.13. <clears throat> Hebrews 3.13. Hebrews 3.13. So as we take the litmus test, we say, okay, I don't want to just say it. I don't want to just say that I love others and I'm living for others. Okay, Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another, that means encourage. Exhort one another every day. 
every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As long as it's called today. Again, the point of the board, the divine context for the life of a believer is love. Go to 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Don't believe that? Well, let's read 16, 14 in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> I don't have much time left, but we're, we're going to give you a little bit more. I'll give you a little bit more thought, some food for thought as you go. <clears throat> Again, the divine context for the life of a believer is love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 substantiates that. Context, activity, you know, your life, that whole ball of wax that we talked about at the start of service. Let all that you do be done in love. Oh, really? Everything? Everything. That's your litmus test. That's your litmus test. Do you have, is that you? Are you all in? Or do you have like these, you know, I know, Scott, I know we were talking about this. Do you have like 10%? You have 90% for God, and then you have this little 10% over here for you. You do that? Who doesn't do that? 90% for God. Birthday and weekends. Right? Anything goes. 90% for God. 10% for me to just be ridiculous. Are you doing that? Is, that? is that 1 Corinthians 16, 14? Let all that you do be done in love? I don't think so. I think that's actually the antithesis of love. I think that's actually living for self. And the fact that you say, well, it's still only 90, 10. The fact that you plan it means it's not 90, 10. It's much less than 90, my friend. Because you've planned and architected this whole thing, and all of that takes time and energy. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, this, this is what he wants us to think about. The divine context for the life of a believer is love. God is sanctifying us to that end. Let all that you do be done in love. It doesn't say most things, it says all. So everything is on the table. Woven throughout our messages, eh, i got about five minutes. Woven throughout our messages over the past few months has been this recurring warning, or some variant of it. When we're obedient, we're confident. I mean, the message titles is, uh, the Lord is our confidence, right? Anyone or anything, and we alluded to this earlier, anyone or anything that incites us to disobedience ought to be categorically thrown out of our lives. Just throw it out. That little so-called 10%, go like this. You ready? Take a cleaver, gone. You're not going to miss it. You think you're going to miss it, but you're not going to miss it. You just won't. Try it. Try it, honestly. Hack it out. See if you miss it. Our sanctification and therefore our confidence depends on these things. So the warning shot across the bow has been very simple. Disobedience destroys confidence. So now we're on the flip side of the positive. Disobedience destroys confidence. On Sunday, the Spirit asked me to seed a little introspection. Yeah, we've got time. Why not? 
seed a little introspection for you on this topic. And I'll say this as well. We all have insecurities, whether we like to admit it or not. Is that fair? Raise your hand if you do not have insecurities. <laughs> and then after class, you can come to my office and I'll give you a few. How's that? <laughs> right? I'll give you a few to think about. Just saying. I don't like to do that, but for you, you know. We all have insecurities, you know, whether we like to admit it or not. And, and you know, every so, it's okay to pick on it. Every, it's okay to be, you know, not PC. Just look for the overstated portions of a person's personality, including your own. And you'll likely find the area of weakness. Look for the overstated portions of their personality or their what I'll call the presentation layer. Look at that, and you'll likely find their area of weakness. As in, people with judgmental hearts often try to compensate with being nice, quote-unquote, but it's religion. People who are all bravado are often compensating for feelings of weakness. People who constantly try to overwhelm you with their intellect are the ones harboring feelings of inadequacy. Just look for that, just look for the overstated portions, the caricatures of a person, or even their physical or whatever. That's usually where the weakness lies, because they're overcompensating. Anyways, you get the point. Here's the seed from the list of Sunday, or from Sunday worth reviewing. And I'm trying to get to a better spot because I really don't want to end on a, a, you know, what I would call a, a more a, a downer note. So just bear with me. Connecting disobedience with insecurity or lack, which is really just a lack of confidence. Suppose you're insecure with your intelligence. God says you're smarter than every atheist. How about insecure with financial status? God says you don't need any more. Looks, God sees the beauty in you. Reputation, God says you matter most to him. Who cares what other people think? And faith, God says I gave you the word to solve that. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ, right? Romans 10 17, I believe. Please don't misunderstand my intention here, and I, I, I'll, I'll end here in a moment. Like I said, I, don't, I didn't really want to end on that note, but I don't want you to misunderstand my intention here. Any of it, especially the last mm, 20, 30 minutes of this message, Galatians 4.16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I mean, I've been teaching you the truth all night. 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? That's the nature of a shepherd. I get the scowls and the funny looks and the, oh crap, I can't do this anymore because that's overstated and everybody's going to know. Ay, ay, ay. Right? Some of you just can't help but be magnificent, okay? Does that help? Does that give you like an out? Uh, remember this, and I'll leave you with this. I love you. That is a fact. I've been here for over a decade doing this thing. Many times it's tough Many times I'm broken. Many times I just don't want to be here, frankly. But here I am, not for me, 
not to satisfy my own sleep habits or lack of them, but for you. So maybe you can sleep better tonight. This is hard work. Don't forget it. As a shepherd, I see the wolves in sheep's clothing gathered around this congregation. And every one of you is being seduced by the kingdom of darkness as I speak this truth to you now. I'll just leave you with this. Trust me. Trust me when I say, if you don't trust me on this one point, then it's time for you to go. If you don't trust my discernment on this one point, that I actually do see wolves in sheep's clothing, always around this congregation, always trying to infiltrate. If you don't trust that in me, find somebody you can. Because we exist, honest to goodness. Those shepherds, the real ones, they're not phonies. It's a spiritual gift. We see it, we discern it, and we do our best to protect you. Fair enough? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening's message. Thank you for truth. Thank you for setting us free. And thank you for imparting confidence in our lives so that we can dispel all the insecurities that just have historically brought us low, Father. We only want to be low when it comes to you, to be humbled before you so you can exalt us. This is a good thing. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back into the privacy of our own souls, back to our homes, and then your will be done out to a world that just needs the truth so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.